0: A word of caution. This episode discusses details of murder that may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. 36 years ago, a young woman baked cookies with her aunt and then headed off to a local mall, probably to pick up a gift for her fiancé for Valentine's Day. The two had plans to celebrate with a dinner out later that evening. But that young woman never made it inside the mall. Instead, she was forced back inside her car by an unknown assailant and found murdered a few miles away just a short time later. Investigators eventually linked her murder with another homicide of a local 17 year old girl who had a prostitution arrest on her record. While the two victims came from very different backgrounds, it appears only one man was responsible for both murders. Unfortunately, neither murder has ever been solved. We'll also update you on where the investigation into Asia Degree's disappearance stands today and a cold case of a double murder that finally resulted in an arrest from Charlotte, North Carolina. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters. Some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day, but all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me this week for True Crime in the Carolinas. Episode 54, Cold Case, The Murders of Pamela Murray and Beverly Sherman. When I was a teenager growing up in the small town about 20 minutes outside of Asheville, the Asheville Mall was my home away from home. I spent many weekends there wandering in and out of the stores and snacking at Corndog 7 and Sbarro. I later went on to work both at the mall and the movie theater across the street. At the time, I had no idea a 23-year-old woman named Pamela Murray had been abducted from the mall in the late 1980s and murdered just a short time later. What's even more frightening is that her murder, along with the murder of a teenage girl named Beverly Sherman, was never solved. And after going back through the news reports at the time, it was clear the killer had been canvassing the mall for weeks, probably looking for an opportunity to abduct a woman. For the purposes of putting together an accurate timeline, this story really begins on January 20, 1987. That's when a teenage girl named Beverly Sherman was seen getting into a light yellow Camaro behind the Asheville Civic Center. Police later suspected that the car belonged to a John, as Beverly had been previously charged with prostitution. After that, she disappeared. A month later, on February 14, 1987, Pamela Murray drove to the Asheville Mall a few hours before she was supposed to meet her fiancé for dinner. She never made it inside. A witness later told police a man had approached Pamela outside the mall around 1 p.m. near the Sears entrance and grabbed her by the arm. The two then left in Pamela's 1986 gray Oldsmobile with the man driving. Just a short time later, another witness saw the car near Azalea Road and realized the man and woman inside were struggling. Shortly after that, A motorist called police to report what they believed to be the body of a woman lying motionless on a deserted part of Azalea Road. She was visible to motorists passing by. It was only about 20 minutes from when she was abducted from the mall. Police theorized she had jumped out of the car and then her captor shot her. There were no signs of sexual assault. Her car was found back at the Asheville Mall in a different area from where she'd been abducted around 1 a.m. the next morning. The fact that a woman would be abducted from the mall parking lot in an area of town where people had always felt safe stunned residents. Pamela Murray was a lifelong resident of Buncombe County who had graduated from Inca High School in 1981 and then attended Blue Ridge Technical College. At the time of her death, she was working as an industrial engineer with Asheville Industries, After her murder, several of Pamela's friends established a fund in the hopes they could offer reward money to anyone who had information about Pamela's case. Various community members and business owners donated to the fund, and it eventually grew to more than $13,000, but produced no solid leads. Detectives eventually questioned more than 50 people, including Pamela's family and friends. The FBI conducted ballistic tests on the bullets recovered from her body. In an article that ran in the Asheville Citizen Times on February 27, 1987, I noticed a news brief on the same page that read, Parking Lot Flasher. It said, An Asheville woman has reported that a man exposed himself to her in the Asheville mall parking lot. The 23-year-old woman said a man in his 30s with brown frizzy hair drove his automobile in front of her car pulled down his pants, and exposed himself, according to reports given by the Asheville Police Department. Captain Will Anorino said he believes this unidentified man committed a similar offense about two weeks ago at the mall. They released a sketch of the suspect to the media. I'll share it on my social media pages. Pamela's abduction and murder were still being investigated a few months later on April 26, 1987, when a man was walking a piece of property for sale on top of Vance Gap Road, a location in between downtown Asheville and the mall area on Tunnel Road. There, he came across the remains of what appeared to be a young woman. The victim was identified as Beverly Sherman, the teenager who had disappeared after getting into a yellow Camaro in late January of 1987. She had been shot once in the right temple with a handgun. The obituary that ran in the newspaper at the time said Beverly was a native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and had lived in Buncombe County for the past 11 years. Other than that, there isn't much known about Beverly other than she was charged with solicitation for the purpose of prostitution on August 14, 1986, in the Cox Avenue part of town. A year after both Pamela and Beverly were murdered, the Asheville Citizen Times reported that evidence from the FBI confirmed both cases were linked. Captain Will Anarino said, "'We can now say without a doubt "'that the same person who killed Murray killed Sherman.'" In the article, he would not elaborate on what the conclusive link in evidence was. He did say, new forensic technology which has been developed recently has made it possible to reevaluate certain evidence in both cases, particularly Murray's vehicle. In addition to the physical evidence, the method of operation for the killer seems to be the same for both slayings. Both women were taken to isolated dirt roads in wooded areas and then shot to death. A witness who had seen Beverly Sherman get into that yellow Camaro confirmed the driver of the car looked like the police sketch of the man seen with Pamela on the afternoon she was abducted and murdered. The man was described as a white male in his mid 30s with blondish hair. If you follow the series of news reports that came out right after Pamela's murder, you'll see that the killer was likely visiting the mall in search of his next victim after Beverly Sherman. On February 11th, a woman had reported a man tried to kidnap her from the mall parking lot. On February 13th, another woman said a man followed her into a public restroom inside the mall and tried to peep over at her through the stall. On February 16th, a man fondled his genitals in front of yet another woman. These are the only details shared, so I can't expound on them any further, But the first two definitely give you the sense the killer was using the mall as his hunting ground and stalking potential victims. And then, for some reason, he was brazen enough to abduct someone in broad daylight. On October 9, 1988, police detective John Kirkpatrick told the Asheville Citizen Times, I don't know if the killer's still in the area. No other victims of similar killings have been found, so it might indicate that the killer is no longer there. However, We don't know what triggered the killer. He might still be here, and he might not have been triggered again. If you look at the victimology of the two known victims, they couldn't have been more different. In fact, I am making a conscious effort to talk about both victims here, because there just isn't a whole lot of information out there about Beverly Sherman. But she was someone's child, and she was only 17, and she was clearly struggling in her life. She did not deserve to be executed in the way that she was, and left alone on a lonely mountain road. It also makes me wonder if the killer left the area and has victims in other places. I hope that these two cases will be solved one day, with the help of forensic or DNA evidence. I do believe it's only a matter of time. If you have any information about the murders of Pamela Murray or Beverly Sherman from Asheville, North Carolina, please contact the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation at 800 334 3,000. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. A few years ago, I came across a woman named Erin Sanderson on Instagram, and once I saw her demo the skincare product she had created, I decided to give them a try. I was hooked from the first drop. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil. The Pre-Cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalene Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties so it's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamin E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Altogether, they are the literal dream team of skincare. Since I began using these products, I rarely wear foundation anymore. I start my day with pre-cleanse oil in my daily cleanser of choice, put on my own moisturizer, and layer it with a few drops of hydrating beauty oil. That's all. I can't believe how bright and flawless my skin looks since starting these products. Want to try them out for yourself? Go to shopxerrin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. Next, I'd like to talk about Wow Women on Writing. Are you looking to level up your writing or learn a new skill? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing, or want to learn how to put together a digital portfolio of your writing, Wow Women on Writing can help. Interested in podcasting? On March 22nd, I'm hosting a 90-minute webinar titled, You Can Start a Podcast. During this webinar, offered through Zoom, you will... Learn the benefits of creating your own podcast, materials you need to get started, how to develop content that will keep listeners coming back for more, and ways your podcast can create supplemental income. All written materials and resources are provided by me. I'll also give you a handout with information discussed in the webinar, along with suggestions for a few different types of podcasts to explore. The session will conclude with a 15-minute Q&A. Best of all, this webinar only costs $35 and is limited to 20 students, so reserve your spot today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classroom tab. I'll also post a link in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. Nine-year-old Asia Degree disappeared 23 years ago from Shelby, North Carolina. Her case has gained not only regional but national interest because of the unusual circumstances surrounding it. Her mom, Aquila Degree, described her as a quiet but happy child who always wanted people to get along. She also said her daughter would talk to anyone, and that may have contributed to her disappearance. Local news station WBTV recently interviewed the family again, and I put together a timeline of what happened when the little girl went missing, based on that article and a few other local media sources. On the evening of February 13, 2000, the family was watching Michael Jordan play in the NBA All-Star Game. In the middle of the game, the power went out. Asia's uncle came by and said there had been a car accident involving an electrical pole. The fourth grader and her older brother went to bed a little after 9 p.m., and their mom fell asleep on the couch. Around midnight, the lights came back on. Asia's father checked on the girl around 2.30 a.m. and found her asleep in the bedroom she shared with her brother. Investigators believe the young girl packed a few things in a backpack and left her home. Around 3.15 a.m., Aisha was spotted walking along Highway 18 by a few different motorists. One driver tried to turn around and approach her, and she ran back into the woods. A search of that area turned up candy wrappers, a hair bow, and a pen and pencil in a nearby chicken house. Those items may have belonged to Asia. The next morning, Asia's mother discovered her daughter wasn't in her room. She reported her daughter missing around 6 a.m. Police searched for signs of Asia for the next 10 days before the official search was called off. In August of 2001, developers were clearing a property in Burke County when they found a child's backpack labeled with Asia's name. Inside, the backpack contained a Dr. Seuss book checked out from Asia's school library. And a new kids on the block t shirt, her parents said, did not belong to her. A search of that specific area turned up no sign of human remains. In 2016, the FBI and Cleveland County Sheriff's Office released a photo of a car they believe Aisha may have gotten into the night she went missing. It is described as an early 1970s Lincoln or Ford Thunderbird, dark green with rust around the wheel wells. In 2013, Aisha's mother told the Charlotte Observer that she feels she can't trust anyone. She says her biggest fear is that someone their family knows took Aisha, and it could be a person who tried to help look for their daughter when she went missing. In 2014, a 53-year-old man named Marcus Mellon wrote a letter to the Shelby Star newspaper. It read, Aisha Degree has been missing for over 20 years. About four months ago, I had found out her whereabouts and what had happened to her. She was killed and then took and buried. I do know how and what town she is in. I hope you get this letter and do come see me. It's on the up and up. At the time, Marcus Mellon was serving time in a North Carolina prison for sex crimes against children. Investigators interviewed the man and decided his claims of knowing what happened to Asia had no merit. There is currently a $45,000 reward being offered for information leading to an arrest in this case. Anyone with tips should call 704-484-4788 or 704-672-6100. I'd like to talk now about a cold case from Charlotte that recently resulted in an arrest of a suspect. On May 14, 1984, police responded to a double homicide in an apartment complex in the Hidden Valley area of Charlotte. A neighbor went into the apartment when a friend of the resident grew concerned about the young mother's whereabouts. 27-year-old Sarah Mobley Hall, a special education teacher, and her 10-year-old son Derek were found deceased inside the apartment. The murders were brutal. Sarah had been sexually assaulted, and both she and her son were strangled to death. At the time, a Charlotte homicide detective told the Charlotte Observer it was an emotional killing, a sex crime. I have some theories on how it happened. At this point, I'm still questioning several people, but I don't have one suspect yet. He went on to say, We have a fair amount of evidence. I think we'll clear the case. It won't be in the next couple of days, though, unless someone comes in here and confesses. Fourteen years passed with no progress on the double homicide. In 1998, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg police chief, Johnny Jennings, reopened the case once again. He discovered there was possible DNA from a suspect on a pillowcase, but he was unable to find a match for it at that time. This year, the CMPD sent some of that DNA to a company called Forensic Innovative Labs for forensic genealogy testing. They found a match to a relative of the suspect. In an article shared by WFAE.org, CMPD Captain Joel McNeely said, We quickly narrowed down a person of interest in this. That person was now in South Carolina. And with the help of the FBI, we were able to get a DNA sample from that person. The DNA was a direct match to the DNA found at the 1984 crime scene. On February 1st, a 60-year-old man named James Thomas Pratt was arrested at a hotel in York County. The suspect would have been 22 years old at the time of the murder and had a history of misdemeanor arrests. He was charged with two counts of murder and not given bond. Anyone with additional information on this crime is asked to call 704-432-TIPS. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of True Crime in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. I currently don't receive any compensation for this podcast, so every little bit helps me continue producing new content. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.